him first to Derba, then Lystra. He found a disciple there by the name of Timothy, son of a devout Jewish mother and Greek father. Friends in Lystra and Iconium all said, what a fine young man he was. Paul wanted to recruit him for their mission, but first took him aside and circumcised him so he wouldn't offend the Jews who lived in those parts. They all knew that his father was Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they presented the simple guidelines the Jerusalem apostles and leaders had come up with. That turned out to be most helpful. Day after day, the congregations became stronger in faith and larger in size. They went to Phrygia and then on through the region of Galatia. Their plan was to turn west into Asia province, but the Holy Spirit blocked that route. So they went to Mysia and tried to go north to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus wouldn't let them go there either. Proceeding on through Mysia, they went down to the seaport Troas. That night, Paul had a dream. A Macedonian stood on the far shore and called across the sea, come over to Macedonia and help us. The dream gave Paul his map. We went to work at once, getting things ready to cross over to Macedonia. All the pieces had come together. We knew now for sure that God had called us to preach the good news to the Europeans. Our initial conversation, my initial conversation with Brandon and Sherry was going really well. Uh, Todd, the, the person that you all know, uh, who was the one that connected us up, was really excited. He said, I think this is the one. And we had some, some exciting, to me, Zoom calls. We fully expected, even though the last most critical piece had not been done yet, and that was the invitation to come, come visit with us, so that LifeSpringers could weigh in on this. That had not been done yet, but it still felt like the possibility was really strong that in late spring or very early summer that we would have Brandon and Sherry here to take my place. While we were uh, preparing, while we were thinking along those lines, uh, and before I got the phone call, I had decided that I was going, I want, really wanted to preach to LifeSpring three final sermons. And so if you've been looking at Currents, you know that I've been teasing you with that, Bruce's last three sermons. And so I'm, I'm now beginning my last three sermons. I knew the sermons were already written. I'd already written them. That's how much I believed that this was going to happen. And then Bev and I are driving up to Santa Rosa to see our son and, and family, and... Uh, the phone rings on the car, and it's Brandon, and I'm going, oh, no. And sure enough, that was the phone call where he said, we're not coming. So I thought more about the sermons, and I thought, I, I don't want to not preach these because I think they're important sermons, and, and so that's why I'm, I'm doing this. I want to reminisce. I want to reflect. Uh, I want to look forward to 17 years of, of ministry in Merced. This month, LifeSpring celebrates 16 years of worshiping right here in this spot. 16 years. My hope for this three series is that I can, I can get you to think more deeply than you've ever thought about the kingdom of God, 
and your commitment to it and your discipleship to Jesus. That's my goal. That's what I want you to think about. I want you to, to pray about it and swim in it and maybe be disturbed by it even because that's what I always experience when I think about these things. I don't know if I've ever told you this story before. I, I probably have, but twice in many years of ministry, once in the 80s and the, the other was in the early, very early 2000s. I was in the middle of a sermon in both times, both of those occasions, and this question pops in my mind right in the middle of the sermon, what are you doing here? It is a very disorienting and disconcerting question because what it did is it, it laid doubt at the whole ministry that I had been involved in in both of those places. So Bev and I, the last time this happened, were sent on about a two or three year search, tossing this question around over, over meals and in the car as we were driving. My ministry, which had seemed to me, and, and I, let me say this, let me just say this by way of disclaimer, I don't want you to think of my ministry as being anything special, I want you to think about your ministry as well. That's how I'm using it. But my, my ministry had been so neat, so, so carefully laid out, had so much meaning for me, fraught, uh, uh, in, involved in it. But now it seemed pointless. What am I doing here? What's the point of what I'm doing? Now, I don't believe for a minute that God intended, I don't think God planted that there, by the way, but I don't think he intended or wanted me to give in to that, that question, that sense of aimlessness, pointlessness, uh, purposelessness. He didn't intend for me to withdraw from it, but to engage it. So often, I think what we, we Christians do is when something, something niggling and troublesome enters our mind or our life, we tend to flee from it because we don't want to face it, because it's too, too scary to think about. We do that with doubt, don't we, a lot? Oh, I can't doubt. I'm a Christian. So we don't address it or, or wade into it and find out what it's about and what we need to study or to think about or pray about. First time this happened to me was in Texas, and the first time it, it had to do more with a, an absence of growth. It felt like we were just going through the motions. Large 800-member church, you could go in there and sit down in a pew in the back section, and no one would ever bother you. We even had a little group that would come in through that door back there. And they would come in and they would sit down in either one or the two sections nearest that door. And they would wait till communion was served and they would take it and then they would leave. And that was the, the extent of their connection to us as a family. Our church seemed distracted. 
seemed like it had gotten to the point where it was majoring in minors. A nice all-church barbecue had more importance to us, more significance than in thinking about the kingdom of God and where we needed to be as far as the church was concerned. Second time, it had to do with the inability, the incapacity of the churches I was working with to really be relevant to outsiders. And uh, the most, this, by the way, was the most disturbing of the two, two times this question came to me. And it happened, uh, I was a 15-year member of Kiwanis in, in Lodi. And uh, one of my friends in Kiwanis was uh, a man in his probably early 30s. And his name was Chris, and Chris was, uh, his, his girlfriend was Christy. One day I was in my office. Chris didn't go to church anywhere, by the way. Raised a, in, a, in a very irreligious family. It wasn't that they were atheists or didn't, didn't believe as much as they just didn't care. So one day Chris calls me, and he says, Can I come over to your office? Sure. Come on over. He said, I'm bringing Christy. Well, I, I already know now what the question is. So they came over and they said, we'd really like for you to do our wedding, if you would. Wow. What a gift, what trust. So I, I did the wedding and we had a great time and enjoyed their family. And then I started asking my questions the question, could I invite Chris to come here? You know what the answer was? Talking about to our church. answer was no. I would have never invited Chris because I, I knew that as lovely as many of those people are, I knew that he would come and he would listen to our language and he would look at our practice and, and our attitudes and all of that, and one time would be enough. And it'd be like he got his COVID shot, you know, for, for religion, for faith. Had enough. That's it. The question turned my and Bev's lives upside down, as I've already said, but it also helped us to start to think about uh, what God wanted for, from us and, and from his church. Now, you've, you've been around me long enough and you've heard me say this a lot of times. Most of the things that I think we pray to God about, that we worry about and fret about, God doesn't care about. And that sounds really crass, doesn't it? But that's not why people die on crosses. People die on crosses. Jesus died on the cross for the grandest idea that you could ever conceive in your mind. And that's what God is concerned about. That's what God is doing in the world. I love the song that we sang, Joel, about, you know, if you, if you see this, that, or the other happening, then God's here. And it formed my deep conviction that disciples of Jesus 
are identified by their unselfishness, by their deep hunger to be true in every respect, by their deep hunger to know truth, to know what they don't know, by the integrity of their testimony. They don't, they don't walk out of church on Sunday morning and then flip somebody off on Monday. There's integrity. There's, there's this calling. There's this thing that says in Disciples of Jesus, I am following my Lord and I know what my Lord values. And I want to live like that. I want to live like that. Whatever the cost. The will of God is always connected to the kingdom. Always connected to the kingdom. From the beginning to the end of the Bible, we just see, I just, it jumps off the page what God is doing in terms of raising up David and then raising up Jesus and then raising up Paul. It's all devoted to this one global cosmic thing that God is doing. Bluntly said, if a person says, I love Jesus, but they never show up, continues to espouse arrogant, lazy concepts, and lives in a way that is contradictory to their profession, I doubt that that's the truth, that they love Jesus. Because I, I think throughout Scripture, Jesus himself said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you will do what I say. If you love me, you will take into your life my global mission. If you love me. I told a small group this story, but to show you how, how far churches get away from this, that same church where the first question came up in my mind, uh, this was like a 1,200-seat auditorium. And so it took lots of ushers and people passing communion when it came time for communion or to pass contribution. And there was this one guy that, that didn't really do anything at that church except he would stand up and help pass the collection plates and the communion plates. That's what he did. And one day, somebody caught him taking money out of the collection plate and putting it in his pocket. And so they talked to the elders about it. And I, I was in the elders meeting. I heard the conversation, and they were trying to, to figure out what they were going to do about this. And they, they didn't want to embarrass him, and they didn't want to do this, and they didn't want to do that. So they just decided their, their decision as a body of leaders, spiritual leaders in that church, was to just take him off and not just tell him not to pass trays. And I, I want, if I could talk to them again, I would say, what are you thinking? How does this get, get this man closer to the kingdom, closer to the will of God, closer to what God wants him to be? You completely blew it. And I, I think, if I can 
speak generally about the American church. I think we become more like that and less like disciples who are moved by the kingdom vision, who are moved, motivated by what God is doing. A man named John wrote the, the, what he calls the, the apocalypse or the, the revelation. It's addressed to seven churches. The, re, the revelation is addressed to seven churches in Asia. Uh, these people were undergoing some sort of persecution. Scholars, most scholars think maybe Domitian was the Caesar at the time. Domitian hated Christians. And so he was making life hard for Christians. And so the revelation was written to them, the message being, don't give up. Don't give up. And here's why you shouldn't give up. He's helping them to make meaning of their suffering. This is a short synopsis of, of what he told the churches in the middle of their suffering. To the church in Ephesus, you have abandoned the love you had at first. I remember my baptism very clearly. And I, I remember how, how jazzed I felt, how, how, how much I wanted at that point of time to follow Jesus. And so he's kind of reminding them, he's saying to them, remember your baptism? Remember how you started this life as a child of God? Your love has gotten cold the church at Smyrna, don't fear what you're about to suffer. There's some things that are about to happen to you that are, that are going to be difficult, and this is not burning the roast or having a wreck. It's having their lives upended by Rome, Pergamon. You have, uh, you have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam. And so the Balaams, uh, Balaamites, the Nicolaitans, Someone that they call they, uh, that John calls uh, Jezebel have invaded some of these churches and have have set up shop and are teaching things. I think uh, there's some philosophies that we have today that might serve to illustrate this. To Thyatira, he said, "You tolerate the woman Jezebel. You you allow her to be." in amongst you, teaching her, her shtick. Sardis, you have the name of being alive, but you're dead. So if this was a Western church that he was writing to, he'd probably say, you have lots of potlucks, and you have lots of uh, intramural baseball games, and you have lots of this and lots of that, but you're really actually dead in the ways that it, that it counts. To Philadelphia, hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. To Laodicea, you're lukewarm. It's really kind of interesting because Laodicea had some, some springs in that city. They were, uh, I think, lime-laden, so they were kind of that chalky-looking spring. And it was lukewarm. It was not something that would quench your thirst on a, a hot day. And he said, that's the way you are. What do you think Jesus would write to us today? I, I got to really thinking about Ukraine, because Ukraine might 
serve as a good example of people who were undergoing suffering, not because of Christ in this case, but undergoing suffering. I know there are Christians in Ukraine. I just know that. And what do you, what do you think Jesus would say to, to those people? Do, do you think he'd say, oh, poor little you. I'll, you know, it doesn't matter. I'll let you off the hook. You're really suffering. <laughs> Jesus never says that. He never lets us off the hook. And so the Western church has raised a crop of spiritual infants that are not tough in the ways that are important. Well, two more points. I've mentioned this, what am I doing here, and, and, uh, and John's very, very serious admonitions to seven young churches. So what was Paul doing around this time? What, what was on Paul's mind? Well, Joel read us the text today. And that text is full of missional stuff. You get to see... Paul's mindset as somebody who takes very, very seriously the calling of Christ. So he says, I want Timothy to accompany me, 16.3. Well, why, Paul? Because he's going to help me do the work that I'm going to be doing. Don't you see? That's missional. That's thinking about what they're doing. Paul delivered the results of the Jerusalem conference to these existing churches. Actually, he tells, in, the way Luke records it is he tells them what the, uh, the Jerusalem elders had decided. I think maybe it could be uh, regarding the contribution that Paul was taking or maybe the decision regarding the Gentiles and circumcision and all that. I think one of those two things. Very missional. Paul sees his responsibility to make sure that uh, these churches grew in their understanding. Third, 16.6, Paul is forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go to Asia. Asia being Turkey, that area of the world. That's where he was going to go. That's where he'd been going. And God says, no, missionally speaking, I want you to go to Europe, is what the message said. I want you to go to Greece and, and Italy and, and all of that part of the world. That's where I want you to go. And, of course, there's that Macedonian man and this vision and this dream that he has convinced that God was calling him to Macedonia. By the way, it's not why I put it in the sermon, but this morning I, I woke up in the early hours of the morning thinking about Ukraine. Funny how stuff like that happens, isn't it? I want you to look at and swim in Paul's intentionality. Look at the church in Antioch, for example. This is uh, Acts 13. Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Missional. You see what God's up to. God says, I want them to go there. This is what I've got in mind after praying and fasting, and they laid their hands on them and sent them off. The church in Antioch was this awesome church. Praying, sending church. So, what do we do with this? 
church universal must think in a strategic way about what Jesus has called it to be. We just have to start doing that. We have to be more intentional and more strategic in the way that we think. We have to ask the question, what, what is God's kingdom? What is God's kingdom calling us to? How can I, as an individual, and the choices that I make contribute to the work of the kingdom? We have to think about what God has said about God's purposes. Quit thinking about God as an ATM waiting to find us a good parking place at the shopping center or an easier life and start thinking about what God committed his self to. And third, what would it look like if we undertook to create a, a strategy for life spring? Seriously strategic and conscientious. You can tell probably from the tenor of this that I think we've gotten off track. I think we've become just like every other church, honestly. How would it affect us individually? Would someone have to constantly beg and cajole us and guilt us in order to motivate us into doing what is right and good? Or would it come up from within us, bubble up as the Spirit inspires us and, and agitates us and gets us to thinking about what God is doing. To me, this morning when I was thinking about the sermon, I, I got to thinking about STEP. STEP is a child-rearing program, systematic training for effective parenting. I used to teach it. And one of the neat things about STEP Parents kind of, at first, they kind of go, boy, that is just really liberal, and I, I'm not sure what I think about that. But what STEP in, tries to encourage people and teach people to do is to create inner values so that children make decisions based on what they understand and feel and think rather than all of their direction coming from outside, like a, a stop sign at a four-way stop, or like the cop who just pulls you over for speeding, or whatever. Being sent to the principal's room. That's all external. And when the external has gone away, what happens? Oh, I can live however I want to. I think that's why God gives us the Spirit. Functions like, like step. It helps us to inform our values and to think about what we ought to be doing. I really hate it. I really hate it. Really hate it. When someone says to me, that was a really fire-breathing sermon. I like that sermon. Boy, that was a real sermon. And I got that a lot at Lubbock. Those old folks really like that kind of fire-breathing. Boy, you let us have it today, Pastor. Is that what it takes? I really think that when my life in intersects a, a truth from God, something that's, that's powerful, that it ought to take up resonance in my life and, and motivate me to be a better person and to do better. Don't you? Finally, 
what if the church put God's work at the head of every list? What if we did that? What would happen to us corporately and individually? If we said, you know, I really, this is something I'd really like to do. I'd, I'd really like to go to this job, or I'd like to go to that school, or I'd like to do this project, or whatever it is. But first, I've got to think about the place that God plays in my life and what I think God would, would love for me to do. God's not going to throw me down on the ground and twist my arm. God doesn't work that way. I hope I've, I've stirred you to think seriously about this. Go back and read Acts 16 and, and look for the missional statements in that little reading. And think about where, is, where does that take life spring? What do we become as we become more serious about, about that? I, I, don't, I don't think we'll remain changeless in that. I think it will upend us the way the question upended me because that's what God's Spirit does for us. Let's pray. Oh God, we want to be consumed by you surrounded by your mission and purpose for us. Help us to be mature in every way. May we, because of our intention and our commitment set about to do what you want, what you've always wanted for your people to do in the world. In Jesus' name I pray this. Amen. <laughs>